it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 22nd, 2015. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Shane Ryan, author of the book Slaying the Tiger, to talk about Jordan Spieth's second straight major win, Dustin Johnson's sad missed putts, and all the golfers whining about the course at this year's U.S. Open. Mm. We'll also assess the Women's World Cup, looking at the U.S. team's chances, how we should feel about the not entirely full stands, and whether FIFA has fouled everything up more or less than we expected. Finally, Zach Hampel will be here to tell us how he snagged Alex Rodriguez's 3,000th hit, why he's not giving the ball back to A-Rod, and where that souvenir ranks among the more than 8,000 baseballs that he has caught in Major League Games. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and a man who has lost at Scrabble to Zach Hampel. I have. <laughs> Zach will, I'm sure, thank tell you us. For, thank you for validating my introduction. Yeah, yeah. He was in college. It was a long time ago. He doesn't play competitively anymore. <laughs> but Stefan wiped the ground with A-Rod. He did. Um, joining us in we New York. We tried to play Fleek before it was recognized. <laughs> joining us in New York, a man who ruins every show he's a part of by interviewing Kim Kardashian. It's the host of Slade's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca, featuring Kim Kardashian. Mike Pesca. Hello, Hello. Mike. What do you guys think of preserving the elements of the quarry? I thought it was unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like they didn't, they didn't clear the quarry enough. I don't know. When that, uh, when that guy Grace's ball bounded into the quarry at the end, that yeah. was kind of dramatic. Been, yeah, but you don't have. But, but there was like all these elements of quarry still there. Like mm-hmm. it was uh, the planet in Aliens, where <laughs> there was a lost civilization. I don't know. Sepp Blatter wants to play football <laughs> on other planets. Mm-hmm. Mr. Slate was the boss of the golf course. That was a little weird. 
Mm-hmm. It was weird after uh, Dustin Johnson missed his putt and yelled, Wilma, and slid <laughs> down a brontosaurus. I don't know. I thought Fox's coverage was enhanced by having Rock Quarry be one of the commentators. <laughs> so Mike uh, missed our interview with uh, Shane Ryan. I got to warn the uh, the listeners. But you got some he golf. will miss you got... our interview with Shane Ryan, yeah, yeah. is what you're trying to say. Right. We taped the was... show in order. Yeah. Ironically, I was watching old episodes of Terriers, which is actually produced by Shane Ryan. There are only a few of them. It's a great show. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will talk about the Kansas City Royals and how their fans have destroyed Major League Baseball's all-star voting system, and whether anyone should do anything about it, whether you, the listener, should stand athwart the all-star game saying stop. But that's not all. Um, I'm very excited to announce that we have undertaken what was at once the most and least ambitious project in the history of the Hang Up and Listen podcast. (laughs) Stefan, Mike, and I went in the studio last week and recorded a two-hour commentary track for Mm -hmm. United Passions, a movie financed by FIFA that The Guardian called pure cinematic excrement. If I haven't sold you on it already, let me add that United Passions has a 0% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is probably why we had such a good time making fun of it. Come on. More than $600. Somewhere between 600 and 900 something. Um, uh, and the reason that it was both the most and least demanding, the athletic feat I'd liken it to is those sauna competitions, which don't <laughs> take much, but when you read about them, the skin does blister and they mm-hmm. cause some serious pain. Yeah, you can train for a sauna competition. It's sort of like yeah, the unintended consequences of athletic competition, sort of like nipples bleeding for marathoners. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I equate it to. All right, we're creating some good visuals here. So if you're not enticed to join Slate Plus by, by that vision that <laughs> Stefan has just seared into your mind, we are releasing this commentary track for Slate Plus members right around the time this podcast comes out. So if you're listening to this then our commentary track is out in the wild, most likely. Um, If you have been kind of wishy-washy about signing up for Slate Plus, do us a solid, at least sign up for the two-week free trial at slate.com slash hangupplus so you can download our commentary track and sync it up as you watch United Passions, which is now available for your viewing displeasure at Amazon, iTunes, Google, and everywhere else terrible digital products are available for for rental. I think we're also going to release a short excerpt of the commentary track on the regular Hang Up and Listen feed so you can listen to a bit of it, see what it is we're yammering about. So once again, go to slate.com slash hangupplus to hear one extra Hang Up segment every week and to get the Pesca Fatsis Levine commentary track for the execrable, 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 (laughs) ex-scrabble, hilarious United Passions. On Sunday evening at Chambers Bay Golf Course outside Seattle, Washington, 21-year-old Jordan Spieth double bogeyed the 17th hole to gank what seemed like a sure victory golf term. After Spieth recovered to birdie 18, his fellow American Dustin Johnson had a fantastic approach shot to give himself a chance for eagle and the win on the very last hole. But Johnson missed that 12-foot putt and then, more absurdly, missed the three-foot comebacker as well, knocking himself out of a potential playoff and giving Spieth his second consecutive major victory, making him the youngest player ever to win both the Masters and the U.S. Open in his career, much less in the same season. There to watch it all happen, perched atop the undulating slopes and covered in a thick layer of fescue, was Shane Ryan, author of the new book, Slaying the Tiger, A Year Inside the Ropes, on the new PGA Tour. Shane, thanks for being here. Uh, yeah, beautifully said, and thank you very much for having me. <laughs> I hope you realize you're lucky 
we invited you back, even though you didn't use our suggested book titles, Defuzzing the Zeller and Slipping Mickelson the Mickey. <laughs> it wasn't, didn't somebody say Fisting the Palmer, too? Or was that just something I made up in my head afterward? I don't think so. I certainly hope I didn't say that. That may, Maybe I got that one in a weird dream or something. <laughs> um, before we get going here, we should note that Shane's dreams are very weird and that Mike Pesca is sitting this interview out, but don't worry, he'll be back before you know it. Um, in your piece for Golf Digest on Sunday, uh, Shane, you said that with Johnson's missed putts, it's felt like everyone on the course failed. Every one of us choked alongside him, even as we were bearing witness, and that basically even though you kind of wanted Spieth to win, you didn't want him to win this way. And nobody wants to see somebody miss this brutally. Yeah, I think it's very rare in sports to see somebody in such a lonely position where all they can do is fail. Johnson's four-foot putt, if he made it, they were going to go to an 18-hole playoff. And so it was not going to be a triumphant or memorable putt when he hit it. But it's certainly the, <laughs> the consequences of missing were terrible. And you know, right when he missed the putt before the eagle putt, I just got this growing sense of, I don't know, like dread. And and I turned to Stephanie Way, who I was watching, and I said, I know he's, I just know he's going to miss it. And it did. When he, you know, when he missed it, it felt like, I don't know, it, it did. There was the, the groans. We all felt terrible, and it's kind of a unique feeling. It did. It felt like we all choked. We all kind of wanted to throw our heads into the fescue and then just not be where we were at that moment. And yet, the outcome seemed like it. You know, if it wasn't the most uh, desirable way for Jordan Spieth to win the U.S. Open and to win it after having won the Masters and to have done those things at the age of 21, to have effectively surpassed Tiger Woods as the golfer with the most potential at this age, was pretty remarkable. I mean, Spieth seemed shocked. The Fox coverage seemed like... like Johnson had leprosy. I mean, they didn't want to talk about the missed putts. They didn't analyze the missed putts. They didn't ask Greg Norman, who was sitting there, like, oh, Greg, you know a thing or two about having gacked a couple of majors. Uh, why don't you explain what Dustin Johnson might be thinking right now? So to shift it back to Spieth, you know, that was the outcome you wanted. I mean, that was the outcome I think a lot of people wanted. Yeah, I think, and I think it was like the best possible outcome for golf. I mean, it's you know, in, in a sport that's looking to try to replace Tiger Woods, I think they need and they really want a rivalry. And you know, after Spieth won the Masters, a lot of people kind of prematurely said, "Well, you know, maybe he's the next Tiger," or they put him on a level with Rory McIlroy, another young guy with four majors. And I, I thought that was a little quick, but it's definitely not quick now. I mean, he's got two majors at age twenty-one. Tiger, Rory, uh, I think even Nicholas didn't have two majors until they were 23. So, yeah, it, it's amazing for golf. He's, I think he's more and more, I think he's a great personality for the game. He's really kind of opening up. Yeah, forget, forget the way it ended. The fact that Jordan Spieth won is, I think, huge. I think it's great. And I think that that's interesting what you just said, because I think that Spieth now seems more interesting to those of us who maybe don't follow golf as closely as someone like you does. Uh, everyone was talking about his maturity beyond his years, you know, for having done what he's done in these last two majors. But it looks to me like he's kind of a dude's dude. He's got roiling emotions. He wears them on his sleeve. He looks like he might actually not be the sort of born and bred golfer who, you know, played the junior circuit and was sort of just trained to do this in a robotic well, way like Tiger. Before we let Shane answer, I'm going to push back on that a little, little bit. I think he strikes me as like a rich 60-year-old white man's idea of like the perfect 21-year-old mm -hmm. with his like yes sirs and no sirs. And you wrote about this a little bit in your book, 
Shane. And it's interesting to hear you talking about him maybe opening up and being a little more interesting. I don't think it's necessarily calculated on his part and designed to get endorsements from like the rich 60-year-old white man products. But this is a guy who seems like he says all the right things in a way that make it seems like a little creepy to me, even. Anodyne. But on the course, he seemed more animated. Looks like he's got a personality when he's playing. Yeah, yeah. And I think last year when I was watching him in, in the course of writing the book, it, I had that same... Creepy is a good word for it, you know, that, or that, that just unsettling, like, uh, Stepford Wives kind of feeling where it's like, how is he so mature? How is he always saying the right thing? You know, he's saying Mr. Palmer, Mr. Nicholas, instead of Jack and Arnie or whatever. Yeah, it seemed like he was trying to, you know, get endorsement deals from every insurance company. It's because, I think what, I, what I've learned is it's because he's so smart that, he, that he's just really good at that. Like, almost like he's playing a part and he's playing it with a sort of method actor's commitment. He, he could do that, and I didn't really like that part of him. And I liked seeing him on the course when he would have these mini meltdowns or when he would constantly talk to himself. And what I said in the book was that he, you know, the more he won the less we would probably get to see of his quote-unquote real personality because they can just shut it down, right? The more he wins, he only has to appear on like one you know, Tom Rinaldi uh, special a year, and he doesn't have to talk to anybody. But I think so far, I think actually the opposite is true. His interviews this week were amazing. He, more and more, you learn he's kind of a neurotic. He keeps up this constant monologue on the course, and he's starting to show that side of himself off the course where he gives these great long answers. He's got, I think, more of a sense of humor than he ever let on last year. And, you know, it's slow. Like, it's golf, right? So it's going in, it's going in small steps. But I, I just think, I, I think he's going to be a pretty good ambassador, and I didn't see this coming. But over the Masters and now the U.S. Open, I, I, think, he's, I think he's getting more and more likable and less like that sort of annoying country club, you know, golfer built in a PR robotics lab type guy. And praise to Fox because their coverage was truly abysmal, but they had one great aspect, which was the audio that they were able to capture with. Um, I don't know if you if you saw Shane, if they like just had gigantic boom mics everywhere, but they were able to capture the kind of audio that you don't typically hear at a golf tournament. And there was a it was a big story on Friday when the mics caught Spieth saying that the 18th hole was quote the dumbest hole I've ever played, which was not a scripted moment. And it wouldn't have been captured if TV hadn't done a, such a great job, um, you know, miking up the course. And maybe we can transition there to how golfers talked about the course, um, whether it was 18 specifically or the conditions of the greens. Um, what did you think of the complaints that got to the level of perpetual by the end of the weekend? Yeah. So the two things on that, the first thing you have to say that the greens were not good. They were, they, were, they were pretty like bumpy, and they had two different kinds of grass on most of them, so it created these uneven rolls. And for U.S. Open, it's, it's not the greatest you know, feature to have. Matt Every had a really good quote, which is that, yeah, you can make five-foot putts, but you're really going to need the bounces to go your way. <laughs> uh, and you just don't want to see that at a U.S. Open. However, I think you know, the perfectionism and the absolute insistence on everything being pristine that golfers have is a really unattractive look and the fact is that even though the greens were tough and some putts maybe went offline the players that played the best were still at the top of the leaderboard i don't think it affected anything and i thought a great thing about spieth was that you know when he complained about 18 it was kind of a productive complaint because it played as a par five on sunday which was huge for him but you know he didn't really 
uh, fixate on the greens, and the people at the top of the leaderboard didn't fixate on the greens. And so I think it's like, you know, everybody's got to play the same course. And I almost think the guys who are moaning and groaning about it, like Billy Horschel or especially Sergio Garcia, which is really typical for him, or Ian Poulter, the guys who are doing that are almost sabotaging themselves more than anything because they're sort of, I guess, giving themselves an excuse for not playing well, if that makes sense. And it's like, you know, you guys would be better off ignoring this because there's, there's nothing to be done about it. It's a U.S. Open. It's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be the most challenging golf course in America that these guys will play during the course of the season. And that's why this mystifies me. And I think you're right. I think that the players who allow it to get to them are the ones that are going to have trouble. I was even surprised, frankly, by, by Spieth complaining as much as he did, or at least in that moment that was caught on Mike, because... Whether something is a par four or a par five is irrelevant. They're not playing against par. They're playing for the fewest number of strokes. That's what wins the tournament. Par is a social construct, man. Par is a metaphysical construct. Yeah, that struck me as very weird, too. But Graham McDowell tweeted about that. He's a former major winner. And he said exactly what Stefan just said, but also granted that golf is a really psychological game and that the notion of whether something's a par four or par five, even though every player has to has to play the, you know, same hole and it doesn't quote unquote matter, it still gets into your head. I don't know if if uh, this rings true to you, but the par thing, Shane, it's like golfers want to be validated. They wouldn't be like, I made a birdie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> um, and so if Spieth had made a par, quote unquote par on that last hole instead of a birdie, he still would have won the tournament. But maybe he just wouldn't have felt the like nice endorphin rush of like, I'm good. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely part of that where yeah they would, <laughs> do, you you joke about that, but I think that's absolutely true of golfers. I think they want validation, and uh, this is weird, but I think the fact that it's a sport with a lot of guys who you know grew up wealthy, I don't think they're used to being told they're wrong or being shown they're wrong. So they feel, I guess they feel more free to complain. The one thing I will say in Spieth's defense is that this is like a weird hole. So when it played as a par four, it meant that they would move the tees up a little bit and. The way the fairway is shaped, the bombers, when they move the tees, the tees up, there's like maybe 15 guys in the field who can hit to a certain spot that's going to give them like a nine iron in. And Spieth can't do that. And so it's a huge, even though, yeah, like you said, it doesn't matter. Your score is your score. But it was actually a huge tactical disadvantage for him to have the tees moved up uh, as compared to have them playing back and playing as a par five. So, you know, there's that, but it's, it's still, it's, it's one of these like small, small things. But I think... One of my weird conspiracy theories here was that Spieth complained about that in a very purposeful way because it only played as a par four one time on Friday, and I think he wanted it to be a par five the other days because it would be much better for him, uh, you know, as we saw yesterday. And so I almost, and I don't know if this is true, and I'm really mind-reading here, but I want it to be true, so I'm going to say it anyway. I, I think he's like, it's like almost like a, a bit of strategic genius on his point, kind of putting an earworm in, in the ear of the USGA and making sure that he didn't have to deal with that again. So I don't necessarily agree with you guys on the greens, because couldn't you make an argument that if the players just stayed silent, and the greens were, were crappy, as mm-hmm. you acknowledge, Shane, if the players stay silent and don't say anything, aren't they just carrying a water for the USGA? I mean, maybe it would be, and maybe if you're thinking of it and don't say it out loud, it still has the same psychological effect. So I don't know if, 
we can say that, you know, Sergio Garcia somehow made it worse for himself by like giving a quote rather than just having that same exact thought run through his head for 72 holes. Well, I think that there should be some standard in terms of the quality of a course. I mean, yeah, golfers who started playing sort of post-19, you know, pick a pick a year, Shane, 80, 85, are accustomed to everything being so meticulous, so sculptured, so perfect that anything odd, unless it's odd in a way that they expect it to be odd, like, oh, we're going to play the British Open on a Lynx course, it's going to be different – Anything out of the ordinary at home becomes a cause for complaint. Well, I think that Shane's just evaluating people based on whether their quotes are funny. Like, so if everybody yeah. was funny, like Matt Every, be like, yeah, yeah of course you should <laughs> yeah. complain about this. Just use a little humor. You've, you've totally won me over. No, I, I think you actually, Josh, you made a good point. And it's not, yeah, I don't know how to explain it. It's not that you shouldn't complain or you can't complain because. Yeah, if, if nobody complains, do you quietly condone future U.S. Opens having more terrible greens? Like, that's not what anybody wants. Mm-hmm. I guess it was just a sense that I had that the people complaining the loudest were just not playing well, and this was almost their way of venting their anger at themselves not playing well, but blaming somebody else. Tiger Woods didn't complain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Like, like, if he had complained, it would have seemed ridiculous, right? And I just, I think to a lesser degree... That, that's sort of what I felt about Sergio and a few other people. It's like, you know what, you, you, if the greens were absolutely smooth, you would still be exactly where you are on that leaderboard. I mean, I did see Brent Snedeker's putt on 14, like, hit a wall and then bounce to the left. Well, there was some question about whether he had a sprinkler turn. that was off the green. That's another example of Fox yeah. just not informing Correct. the viewers. Just one question about the Fox coverage. And you were walking on the course, so you actually got to see the golf unperturbed by Joe Buck and Greg Norman. But do you think that the complaints there are, again, because of the audience that watches golf and just people that want the same thing that they've seen over the years with Jim Nance or Johnny Miller or whatever? I mean, Fox did use the shot tracer where you can see like the purple parabola or whatever with the ball they showed. They had some cool on-screen graphics. And like I said, they had the audio. They also screwed up a bunch and it was not the best kind of cleanest broadcast. But is this this first U.S. Open for them? Is it, you know, just needs improvement and they've introduced some things that will be better for broadcasting and golf in the future? Or is it basically that Fox is just bad at this? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, a lot of people said, you know, okay, CBS and NBC have been broadcasting golf for whatever, 50 years. And so there's going to be a learning curve. But from what I saw of it, and, I, you know, I saw a good amount in the media center. I thought it was really, really poor. You know, something as simple as, and I, I guess Chambers Bay isn't the easiest course for this, but a lot of times it felt like they didn't really track the ball that well. It felt like the analysis was pretty poor. Uh, you know, at one point, I think they, they got the nationality of a golfer wrong. They yeah. said Louis Oosthuizen was Australian, Australian which yeah. is similar it's close. to South It's Africa. only like, what, 10,000 kilometers. Yeah, just across the Indian Ocean, right? The other thing that baffled me, and I, I wrote about this in Golf Digest today, was it seemed like in the beginning, and I was on the course for the back nine, so I don't know if it continued, but... It looked like they had a camera following Jason Day as he they walked did. between holes, and they would actually go to split screen. It was crass. Yeah. And they were waiting for Jason Day, who had suffered a bout of vertigo on Friday and collapsed on the course. They were waiting for him to collapse again. It was like, it was like the White House press corps following the president on vacation. You know, nothing's going to happen, probably, but, you know, if he has a heart attack, we better be there. Yeah, no, I was saying all it, miss, all it was missing was like a tacky tagline, like, you know, we'll be there when he falls or something like that. It was, 
Yeah, I found it incredibly gauche, that part of it. And, uh, yeah, I just think, like, a decision like that, I mean, who who okayed it? You know, I mean, it's such a such a sensationalist way to go. But, what, you know, again, it's their first time, so maybe they'll get better. But, yeah, I agree with you guys. I thought from what I saw, the coverage was bad. And then from what I heard, the analysis was, was pretty well, The analysis was almost too. non-existent. I mean, I have a little quick list here. I mean, Joe Buck was just awful. I mean, I thought the kids got a flair for the dramatic, he said, about Spieth. The walk of a gunslinger coming up 18, he said, about <laughs> Dustin Johnson. It was as if they were sort of trying to do a golf broadcast, but not having prepared to do a golf broadcast. It was sort of the idea of what a golf broadcast should be without any of the preparation or technical analysis. It was really embarrassing, I thought, for the network. Yeah, and it's another thing is like, okay, if you're Joe Buck and you, you, you see all this sort of schmaltzy golf coverage from Jim Nance you know, for years, what, you're just going to try to copy that? Like, you know, like the, the walk of a gunslinger? I mean, why not do something different or, you know, modernize it in some way? We don't need another Jim Nance. Uh, yeah, it, it, that stuff doesn't make any sense to me. All right, Shane, um, we kind of let Dustin Johnson off easy. Yeah. But maybe he, maybe he deserves a break today. Did he choke or did he not choke? No, let's, let's not go there. Yes or no? <laughs> let's not go there. But the book is uh, Slaying the Tiger. Maybe you should change the title to Tiger Lying Down in the Sun and slowly dying of natural causes. But As vultures slowly circle his rotting corpse. Jordan Spieth might call it fisting Mr. Palmer, but um, we, can, we can work all these out in the, in the second edition. <laughs> that sounds like a weird, it's a weird like, uh, English uh, pornographic novel, fisting Mr. Palmer. <laughs> all right. Uh, Shane, thank you for joining us. And uh, you can read him in Golf Digest, Grantland, and pick up the book. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. On Friday night in Yankee Stadium, Alex Rodriguez homered to right field off the Tigers' Justin Verlander. It was A-Rod's 667th career home run and his 3,000th career hit. A milestone the Yankees' designated hitter became the 29th player to achieve. There to catch the ball is a man whose numbers are even more impressive. 37-year-old Zach Hampel has caught more than 8,000 baseballs at Major League Parks in his career as a ball hawk including Mike Trout's first home run as a Major League player and the final homer hit by a Met at Shea Stadium. Most impressive of, of all, he has built a rubber band ball by hand that weighs 272 pounds. And we are going to talk about that with him today. But also maybe the A-Rod ball. Um, Zach is joining us from our New York studio. And if a foul ball gets loose in there, I peg him as the slate favorite to snag it over Mike Pesca. Welcome, Zach. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no foul balls yet, but... Uh... These things sometimes drop out of the sky unexpectedly. And uh, you have the ball with you on your person, right? I do. I am holding it right now, looking at it, and feeling amazing and just so lucky that I happened to be the one to get my hands on it in the first place. You know, we had the Stanley Cup in the studio with Mike Pesca a few weeks ago, and mm-hmm. now A-Rod's 3,000th uh, hit. Pesca, how would you compare the two experiences? Well, one is mired in controversy and the other is mired in a uh, black case with uh, a guard with gloves. I think it's great. I think this, to me, this is, this is more populist, right? This is the feel-good underdog story. I mean, millionaires win the Stanley Cup. Zach Hampel, he got the ball. I think it's a great story. Um, how did you get the ball, Zach? Arod has hit 14 homers this year, five of them to right field, nine to left. So why were you in right field? That's my spot. I happen to have a season ticket out there, which, you know, it's it's lucky that my seat happens to be where A-Rod hit the ball, right? But 
I did put a lot of thought and I did some research into choosing my exact spot for that season ticket in the middle of last season when I actually got that ticket for the first time. There's a website called Home Run Tracker on ESPN. It's affiliated with that, and uh, they chart all kinds of home run data. It's it's fun to look at even if you're not trying to be scientific about catching them, just the speed off the bat and the angle of elevation and, and how high it went and the, the true distance that it traveled and the number of other stadiums in Major League Baseball that it would have been a home run at. This A-Rod one, by the way, would only have been a home run at Yankee Stadium. I heard from the guy who runs that site that it would have clipped the top of the wall in Philadelphia and it, it wouldn't have gone out of any other stadium. So it's, it's kind of why I actually chose that spot at Yankee Stadium. I don't like the dimensions there. I don't like the short porch. When, when the place first opened, I understand they got approval from Major League Baseball to build the, the stadium with dimensions that are smaller for what new stadiums are supposed to be because they were replicating the old place. But there's so many cheap home runs that are hit there, and I don't like that. And after a few years, it was like, well, I can not like it, but if they are going to be home runs, why don't I put myself out there to try to catch some? So, so, so can you walk us through what happened when the ball cleared the fence? Did you catch it on the fly? Was there a scrum? I did not catch it on the fly, and I cringe a little bit every time I hear someone introduce me as the guy who caught A-Rod's 3,000th hit. To me, the word caught indicates on the fly. I picked it up off the ground. And let me give you the quick play-by-play of how it all went down. I'm out there in the third row. I'm there often for batting practice. I'm very good at reading balls off the bat. And as soon as A-Rod connected, it was just like, oh, my God, this is really happening. Here it comes. I knew it was going to be a home run. I knew it was going to land within a few feet of me, really. And I sensed that it was going to carry a bit farther than the third row. I was out there during batting practice that day, and the Tigers hit a lot of opposite field home runs to right field, especially Miguel Cabrera, J.D. Martinez. And those balls were carrying a bit farther than I expected. So on the A-Rod one, it was like, okay, I'm going to back up a little bit just in case. So I, I went up to the fourth row on the staircase. Because your seat is on the aisle, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't even have bought a ticket unless the Yankees could give me one on the end of a row. That, I mean, it was like, I don't yeah. even want to be out there. If I'm Otherwise, gonna... you're fenced in. Yeah, exactly. There's no, there's no yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm on the fourth row. The ball's coming in, and I try to back up a little bit. I'm, I'm trying to lean back and getting ready to jump, and I kind of hit a wall of people behind me who kind of pushed me forward a bit, and that, that knocked me out of position, and the ball sailed over my glove by a few feet. It was just the absolute worst moment of desperation, and I felt like I had just lost the chance of a lifetime. There were so many bodies behind me scrambling for the ball that I couldn't even see the ground. So I did the, the next best thing. I looked at the, a portion of the ground that I could see, which happened to be right where I was standing. And I don't know if there was divine intervention. I don't know what in the world was going on, how, how it came to be. But the ball was basically touching my right shoe on the very step that I was standing on. And not one other person saw it. And I just bent down and grabbed it and moved away from the scrum. And I actually just saw the footage last night for the first time. I've been so busy that I haven't had time to read articles about myself or watch the highlights. And it's funny how many times I could read my own lips mouthing the words, oh my God, oh my God. 
Because a lot of the people describing it, I mean, the footage is there. You didn't, tr- you didn't trample anyone. You didn't do anything that any- every single human being would not have done, which is basically you bent down and picked up this uh, momentous home run ball. But people were describing it like you had done something wrong. Exactly. Um, there's a perception out there that for every baseball I snag, there's a, you know, like a crying child <laughs> sprawled out on the pavement that I elbowed in the jaw. But that's really not the case at all. I try to be super respectful in, in the process of grabbing all these baseballs. I, I give away a lot of balls to kids. I've also used my collection since 2009 to raise money for a children's baseball charity called Pitch In for Baseball that provides equipment to underprivileged kids all over the world. Specifically baseballs. All baseballs. <laughs> 8,000 baseballs. Yeah. Well, and... we got 8,000 baseballs, guys. You buy some bases. <laughs> exactly. But uh, yeah, there have been a lot of false accusations out there that I'm the worst guy ever and I knock down children. And I can just say it's simply... Not true. You know, everything that people say and accuse other people of are not always true. And that's why, the case why do you here. think, Zach, that catching baseballs is so offensive to some people? The idea that a grown man, you're 37 years old, you've been doing this pretty much since you were 12 years old. Um, you've been doing it, I don't want to say full time, but aggressively pretty close while you it. have a job. I mean, you not do, aggr- I don't you like do the work. word aggressive. How about passionately? Passionately. You thank you. Passionately. No negative connotations. No negative here. connotations. Please, please. Why do you think this ticks people off? Why do you think Deadspin, you know, makes fun of ball hawks? And why do you, you know, why do you get hate email? Oh, man, there's so many reasons. Probably because I'm so good looking. I think that's the first reason. Can <laughs> Pesca, can you agree Your on that? Your head actually looks like a baseball. I mean, if you got red <laughs> stitches, you would be baseball-like. Someone actually wants to do that to my head for Halloween this year. <laughs> Sha- you know, shave it really close and, and paint for the For Halloween? Out. I know a tattoo artist in New York that can take care mm-hmm. of that. Uh, I, I have a problem with commitment, so I don't know if I want to go the tattoo route. But seriously, why people are so pissed off at me... Yeah, it's sort of like, oh, if you're over 12 years old, bro, don't bring a glove. That's lame. Give it to a kid. There's all that stuff. There's a perception that I knock people down and steal baseballs. And you know what? Deadspin is actually responsible for a lot of the hate as far as the whole stealing baseball thing. Years and years ago, I posted a blog entry that showed me getting a a ball tossed to me after the game by an umpire as they were walking in a little tunnel off the field. And... I was the one that called out for it. He tossed it to me. He tossed it because I was the one that got his attention. The ball sailed a couple feet to the left, so I reached out slightly. There happened to be a kid nearby. The way that the angle of the photo was taken, it looks worse than it actually was. And um, that's kind of been this like bad defining moment of Zach Hample steals baseballs from kids. Well, people not only want you to give it to a uh, lovable tyke, they also are saying, you know, you really should give it to the uh, fan favorite lovable Alex Rodriguez. Now, I don't know if you know this. He only is making uh, $2.8 million in base salary this year, although last year he made $28 million, the year before 29 the year before 30 and next year he'll make $21 million. So this is a guy who's made over almost $300 million in his career, and people are honestly saying you should just give it to the guy. I think the whole three hundred million thing is just this new contract that he negotiated. right. That's right. Yeah. Not even what about his Rangers, Rangers days yeah. and Seattle yeah, days yeah. and the endorsements and yeah, yeah. So it, it's funny how this celebrity athlete who's made half a billion dollars in his career or more, everybody's saying that I'm a jerk because me, a normal civilian <laughs> that pays for my tickets, that I'm unreasonable for not wanting to automatically, without even thinking about it for a moment, just hand the ball over to him and quote-unquote do the right thing.
It's crazy to me. I mean, I know that that's what happens because I've been through this before with I've caught three different players first career home runs and I've done a lot of research on milestone home runs I wrote a whole book called the baseball Mm -hmm. which has a chapter on historic home run balls and all the controversy and I've seen press conferences before and yeah you you kind of get dragged through the mud when you're involved in a in a milestone ball like this no matter what you do you're a jerk you keep it you're a jerk for not giving it back you know, you sell it, you're, you're greedy because you want the money. If you do give it back, you're, you're foolish. You should have held out and made top dollar. It's just like there's absolutely no winning in this situation as far as pleasing everybody. So I'm taking my time and really thinking about what I want to do and, and how this ball could be used to raise money for charity and, and what else might come with it. So um, you had tweeted about A-Rod when a fan hypo- asked you if hypothetically – if like the million to one shot happened and you caught the ball, what you would do? And you said, I'll give him the finger and a dummy ball. That man deserves favors from no one, least of all a fan. Now, I don't think you should be ashamed of that. I think A-Rod's a jerk uh, and I don't, I don't like the guy either. But do you regret doing that or does that not accurately reflect your feelings on, on Alex? Or when you were called to the Politburo conference room <laughs> Of Yankee executives, including Randy Levine, the president of the team, and Lon Trost, uh, one of their senior officials. Did you feel any sort of regret then or embarrassment then? Yes, definitely. That tweet I posted, I don't know, a day or two before I got the ball, I never expected to get it. I never thought that the, that everybody's attention would be on me and that people would start finding all the stuff that I had been saying it was just a flippant remark, you know, I was trying to be funny, it was it was negative. You know, part of me did feel that way at the time. And, you know, I mean, I do still feel that A-Rod does not necessarily automatically deserve a favor from a, just a normal person, but I have softened up quite a bit since then. At first when I got the ball, I just was thinking there's no chance in hell that I'm giving this back to him. I'll keep it, I'll sell it, I'm going to make a lot of money. I was just thinking sort of like me, 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 and not him, him, him. And I told the Yankees, look, I appreciate all your offers, but I know that I need to walk out of the stadium with this ball tonight or else it's going to go down as the biggest what-if moment of my life. And I've had now a whole weekend to think about it, and so many people have gotten in touch. A lot of of the emails and, and stuff is positive. Of course, a lot of it is negative. I've gotten offers from auction houses that want to sell it and charities that want me to, you know, donate stuff. And I mean, all kinds of requests. And and, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of people have gotten in touch. And I am actually considering a way now to get this ball back to the Yankees and A-Rod and involve the charity pitching for baseball that I work with. I'm not really in it for money for myself. You know, I that's not why I catch baseballs. I do it because it's fun and I like the challenge and it helps me feel connected to the game. And of course, with this incredibly big historic baseball moment, it feels unbelievable to be, you know, the guy that's that's a big part of it. Obviously, A-Rod hit it and Justin Verlander pitched it and whatever else. But like after those guys, it's, you know, my name is in the conversation and, and that's just so damn cool. So to me, all of that is worth more than padding my bank account. You know, that might sound crazy, but I'm all about the experience and not trying to get rich off of this. How much do you think it might be worth? You know, I was just uh, over at 
Good Day New York doing an interview and unexpectedly the president of Guernsey's auction house happened to be there for something else and they, they brought him on the air with me and they asked him, what do you think the ball's worth? This is a guy who handled the sale of the most valuable baseball in history, which was Mark McGuire's 70th and final home run ball from the 1998 season when that was the record at the time. And that ball sold for just a little over $3 million dollars. And yeah, the market has come down since then because of all the steroid stuff. But on the air, this guy said that my ball could be, you know, as low as fifty thousand and maybe as high as half a million dollars. Because the three thousand hit club has whatever twenty eight or so members. I think twenty nine now yeah. with a rod. But only three wound up in a civilian's hand, as in the three, hit three thousand left the park. So and the other two prior to this were given back to the players. Derek Jeter and Wade Boggs were home runs on the three thousandth hit. But then you have the other complication that. The 3,000 hit is the milestone, but that's not where A-Rod will end up. So, you know, that will affect the value. And then I think A-Rod's lack of popularity probably depresses the value a little bit, unless the buyer is actually A-Rod. And he has so much money. He would spend, I, why wouldn't A-Rod spend 100000 if a good portion is going to charity? You know what I mean? Well, exactly. And, yeah, the Yankees told me that they would perhaps contribute a large sum to the charity and they'd talk to Alex – uh, about making a matching gift, and that's really what perked my ears up. I still said, okay, you know, that's amazing, but I still got to take this ball with me and think about it. Mm -hmm. Those guys gave me their contact info. I've been in touch with them. I'm going to be trying to set up a meeting with them soon to talk further. But, you know, if they're like, well, you know, we'll each give you $10,000 for the ball, for the charity, and some signed balls and bats and some other things... You know, realistically, it's like I know that I could get so much more money just selling it at auction yeah, and then turning money that charity. money over to the charity. So I still want to do as best as I can. But, you know, for everybody out there, especially Yankee fans who are pissed off at me because I'm not giving it back to A-Rod, I'm telling you there is a chance – that A-Rod will get this ball. The irony to me, Zach, the irony to me felt like on the night that this happened, it felt to me like the Yankees were a little bit dismissive, as in, well, the guy that caught Jeter's 3,000th gave it back, you know, why isn't this guy giving it back? And I don't know if that was the message that was communicated to you when you met with Yankee executives, but certainly the Yankee spokesman, their PR guy, that's what it felt like he was saying to me, like, he should do this. The irony there is that this is a team that doesn't want to pay A-Rod for reaching milestones, that wants to renege on their contractual obligation to Alex Rodriguez. Right. There's, uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on. And uh, I don't know. I can understand why the Yankees say what they say and do what they do. I'm not going to pass judgments on them. I, I don't know what's going on over there. But uh, And, of course, Yankee fans hated A-Rod so much a year or two ago. They hated him, hated him. They wanted the Yankees to just release him and eat the money. The Yankees wanted to release him and not eat the money. <laughs> and now they love him so much. I'm out there all the time and everybody cheers for him. And, you know, I get it. It's like he's on your team. You like the team. You want the team to win. So you have to root for this guy. But also people like a good story of redemption and forgiveness. And people love him so much. And so they are hating me because I don't want to cater to what they think I should do for him. It's a very bizarre situation, and I, I get it. You know, I'm not a psychologist, but I understand the thought process. All right. Um, this is my final offer, Zach, or this is my final suggestion to you. You should offer to trade your 10,000th ball to A-Rod. Give him that ball. <laughs> 
<laughs> so he would have your milestone ball, <laughs> and you would have his. Or 3,000. That seems th- fair. Why not 3,000 for 3,000? Yeah, would you trade your 3,000th ball? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't feel like I need to trade. Why don't I just keep them both? <laughs> <laughs> you do. But that's you, an interesting you idea. Do I possess them both. I got my 3,000th ball at the old Yankee Stadium in 2007, I think. Still got it? Yeah, I mean, I understand how important a milestone is. And sure, the people are saying, you know, you, you haven't accomplished anything. You just picked that ball up off the ground. A-Rod is the one who accomplished it. He hit the ball. You're nothing. You're, mm-hmm. you're a wannabe player that wasn't good enough, and you should give it to him. <laughs> well, I've been going to Major League games longer than A-Rod has been playing in them, and this is what I do. It's not like... You know, I never caught a ball before, and it's not, you know I'm not really even a baseball fan. And sure, I'll get. I mean, like, I'm more passionate about catching baseballs probably than anybody in the world. So it's a very, very big moment for me. But still, I'm trying to think about the bigger picture. I realize now that this ball is bigger than me, and this moment is bigger than me. And sure, it's tempting to just hang on to it forever and enjoy it, but. Um, I feel like I want to give something back to the world. So um, that's that's what I'm leaning toward at this point. And I, I don't know how, but we'll see. Yeah. Zach, last question. How long can you keep doing this? How long do you want to keep snagging baseballs? <laughs> there have been a few times in my adult life when I thought I was kind of done with it or my interest was waning. But right now, I, I don't see an end in sight. You know, I I know a lot of people in a lot of stadiums who do this and – there are some older gentlemen out there who have gray hair and they're in very good shape. And I sometimes struggle to keep up with them when the gates open and they're running out from behind home plate, you know, through the concourse, up the escalator, out to the bleachers. And that's very inspiring. So hopefully I'll, I'll still be healthy and have the free time and a, and a situation in life where I can keep going to a lot of games for a long time. Of your, of your 8,000, how many were home runs? This one from A-Rod is the 32nd one that I've gotten during games. And that doesn't count all the ones that landed in the bullpen or bounced back on the field that get tossed back up. Yeah, I feel like that's caught a home run. that Caught it or, um, in this case, you know, picked it up off the ground. Unassisted, 32 gamers. I've also gotten 159 foul balls during games and one ground rule double. (laughs) And is part of your calculation that you want to be able to go back to your seats that you bought, that you scouted, that you liked, that is likely to catch a home run and not be assailed by the other fans? In fact, maybe they would look at you and say, hey, there's the guy who did the right thing by A-Rod, by a charity, etc. Well, sure. I I am concerned for my safety and um, the Yankees have told me that when I am ready to return to the stadium, which will be soon, but I'm not going to say when, that they're going to have all kinds of uh, special security procedures in place to protect me. Cool. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the way they got me out of the stadium the night that I got the ball was top-notch. The head of security, who is armed, by the way, he said, don't worry, you know, I don't have a gun. He goes, I have two guns. Um, <laughs> he, he escorted me and a friend who actually, the friend wasn't at the game, and he called me, and he's like, do you want me there? Do you need me? And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm alone out here. This is crazy. So he drove to the stadium, got there in the fifth inning, and after the game, he and I hung out for about 45 minutes. That's how long it was before we left the stadium. This armed guard walked us out of the stadium, across the street, found a taxi for us, got in the taxi, which drove to where my friend was parked, and uh, this gentleman waited in the taxi to see that we reached the car okay and got in, and then the cab took him back to Yankee Stadium, and my friend and I drove off into the night. 
If this story didn't have a rendezvous point, I'd have been disappointed. <laughs> I love it. All right, Zach. Um, good luck with everything. And uh, we will keep our ears open for what you end up doing with the ball. Thank you guys so much. The Women's World Cup is now in the knockout stage with China, Germany, France, Australia, and Canada already moving on to the quarterfinals. The United States is hoping to join them by winning against Colombia on Monday night after we record this podcast. But even though Abby Wambach has 183 career goals compared to 82 for the entire Colombian roster, Las Cafeteras are not genuflecting to their superiors. They belittle us. Mm-hmm. They think we're a team they're going to walk all over and it will be an easy game for them, says Colombia's Lady Andrade. We're going to beat them since they like to talk so much. Perhaps embracing the concept of irony. I don't know. It didn't seem like she was, but who's no. to say? Another Colombian player, Yoreli Rincon, said the Americans are clearly tall and athletic. It's nice. But they don't have the heart the way Colombians have. Um, so what do you think, Stefan? Do Americans have heart? There's not enough heart. There's been a heart deficit. I think the, the great problem with Jill Ellis's roster composition was that she left out heart. Yeah. Yeah. This is hilarious. This all stems from the 2012 Olympics in London where Abby Wambach was sucker punched by Lady Andrade in the eye and was suspended for the rest of that tournament. And Lady, apparently, Lady was, not Abby. Lady was, not Abby. Um, and apparently after the sucker punch, the U.S. women said some things on the field because I don't think that the U.S. women have talked at all about Colombia, about how they were going to beat them or or that they are better than they are. So this is a straw woman trash talk episode designed to fire up the, the plucky Colombians who have won some, you know, plucky pluckiness credits, including a, a piece on Slate saying we should all root for the plucky Colombians. Lady, when you're with me, I'm smiling. Oh, this will all be, I don't know. I think the Colombians have a chance only because A, the nature of soccer and B, the nature of how the women aren't scoring, the U.S. women aren't scoring. And that might be more than the small sample size. Mm-hmm. And see, they, they beat France in the in the. Uh, yes, yeah, so they don't look terrible. And it's plausible that the U.S. just won't get a goal, right? And it will go to penalties. And is Alex Morgan really super healthy? And is a- Abby Wambach really deserving to even be there? And show me that they, it doesn't even seem like the U.S. has missed Chances, if anything, they haven't had great chances. They've made more of their chances, and they need more chances. I'm a little bit worried. A little bit. So why isn't the U.S. team better, Stefan? Well, because the midfield isn't playing particularly well, and neither are the forwards. The defense has been fantastic, right? The back four is getting a lot of praise. Hope Solo, hater though we do, has been also playing terrific soccer. This is the reason that she's playing. You know, right. She was really player. good. She's we'd a really have, good have, soccer player. We'd have talked to the uh, sister and the nephew if she weren't that good. Yeah. But, you know, the question for the U.S. large is, is there something endemically problematic about the way that the U.S. has responded to the fact that women's soccer has grown in the rest of the world tremendously to the point where there are five or six legitimate candidates to win this tournament and two or three teams that have looked better than the United States has. And those you know, the answer to those questions might be one, the composition of this team in particular, which has chosen to retain a lot of the veteran players like Wambach, who turned 35 20 days ago. Also on the roster, Christy Rampone, who turns 40 on Wednesday. Shannon Box, who turns 38 next Monday, June. Big month for women's national team birthdays. So get your cards prepared. 
And there was a pretty much a, I don't know if it was an open rebellion, but there was definitely player pressure that led to the ouster of the previous coach, Tom Sermani, who wanted to try to change the style and the composition of the team. And there was pushback. Well, Wambach came off the bench in one game. Rampone and Box only played very briefly as substitutes. So it's not like these women are, you know, the dominant on-field presence. And they are they are denying a spot for younger players on the roster, though. But Julie Johnston took over for Rampone. Mm-hmm. She's the second youngest on the team and has looked like the best player so far, the central defender. But there is, um, and Mike pointed it out, it's not like they're just lacking the like last touch in front of goal. The, they just haven't been getting the same sort of opportunities. They haven't looked as fluid as Germany and France have. And um, is it too much to wonder if that is like a chemistry issue um, with with the players? Or is it simply that they just haven't meshed yet in this tournament? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think they've looked terrible. I mean, and and that's the, there's been very little creativity in the midfield going forward, particularly the central midfield with Carly Lloyd and, and Lauren Holiday. But by the same token, it also could be that other teams are figuring out how to play the United States. Um, the United States does not look like a particularly creative team. They don't have flair. You're not seeing a lot of beautiful ball movement, a lot of off-ball movement. You're not seeing a lot of terrific foot skills. They're not creating chances for anyone to finish, and the few chances that are creative have uh, have not gone on the net. Well, Megan Rapino has a lot of flair, except it mostly involves just kicking the ball to herself while rotating around in a circle. I love, I love Megan Rapino, but sometimes she needs to pass the ball. <laughs> um, Mike, there's been a lot of um, attention given to the crowd size, and that seems like it's often discussed with women's sports. Oh, the WNBA, how many f- fans are there? What are the ratings? Like that is the, you know, how these sports are evaluated. And I don't judge the people of Edmonton too harshly for not turning out in droves for Cameroon and China. And if you look at the ticket sales, they're actually already surpassed um, those for 2011 in Germany, right? So what do you think is fair and what do you think is unfair about looking into the stands and kind of divining the health of the sport? I think it's fair to ding FIFA for counting chicanery. And so they're doing this thing where they make people buy doubleheader tickets. So you just buy the one ticket. There's only one way to see the game you want. You got to buy the doubleheader ticket. Guess what? Your your purchase counts as attendance at the uh, second part of the game when actual fans aren't in the seats. So that kind of stinks. But in general, you know, women's sports are getting more popular. They're just, for the most part, pale in comparison to men's sports. But if you look at the timeline of them, so this is Women's World Cup number what, five? No, it started in 91. So that would be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right. So this is Women's World Cup number seven, as we saw from the FIFA video. Okay, that's not a great comparison. Men's football is always more popular, but I think it's doing well. And I think that the ratings on TV, especially because it's not on Fox Sports 1 or 2 or 3, it's on Fox, have proved that there's an appetite for it. And Fox is pretty smart. I mean, because they know that as as the team wins, if the team wins, then the momentum will build. And if they were putting it on a lesser non-broadcast channel, it would be hard to capitalize on that. So they're kind of taking a bet. Well, the game against Columbia is on Fox Sports 1. So maybe that's why the Colombians feel insulted. They're like, you put the group play on regular Fox? That's on Fox Sports 1? Come on, come on. The Nigerian game did really great ratings, even Mm -hmm. against the uh, NBA NBA Finals game. So I think it's there. And 
I think Americans love to come together to root for national teams. And if America's in the semis against Germany, let's say, and they beat Germany, there'll be a lot of momentum for that finals. So uh, Germany and France who have looked, I mean, France did lose to Colombia, but they've looked like two teams that um, have a chance to actually win. And they're number one and number three in the world. They're playing each other in the quarterfinals. The U.S. is number two in the world, and they're on the same half of the bracket. And FIFA created this bracket. They structured the tournament such that if Germany and France won their groups, which they did, they would meet in the quarterfinals, which makes no sense. And Grant Wall of Sports Illustrated asked, why did you put together the tournament this way? And the FIFA apparatchik said, because we needed certain teams in certain places for attendance. We needed teams in certain time zones so that they could watch you know, back in their home countries. Does that explanation make sense at this point in um, the sport's life, Stefan? No, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, it's not fair to the competition. It demeans the competition. It's like, say, if they played the Women's World Cup on turf where the men get to play on grass, right? That would be demeaning to the women. And I think this is the same thing. It, it's, but it's not unique to FIFA, right? The women's NCAA basketball tournament, they play the first mm-hmm. couple rounds at, at home for the higher seeds. This is something that happens in women's sports. It does, but I don't think it's necessary here because FIFA knew that attendance was going to be pretty good at this tournament. I mean, they they can gauge the fact that there was a robust in Germany and this is North America. Um, Even though they scheduled the group play while schools were still in session, as I've mentioned before, in Canada and the United States, when they lost out on tens of thousands potentially of ticket sales to core fan base being, you know, preteen and teenage girls, you know, it's still robust. And I don't know how much FIFA's marketing strategy of trying to place France in Montreal and the United States in particular places in Canada, in Vancouver or wherever, or spread Canada around for the first few games really redounds to the overall success financially of the tournament. You know, you want you want athletic integrity. And this undermines the athletic integrity when you have the first, second, and third ranked teams in the world playing on one side of a 16-team bracket. Well said. Um, Stefan and his daughter are heading out to uh, watch some some games. And one thing that you guys should look out for and try to encourage, Courtney Wen, who we've had on the show, she writes about tennis. She pointed out on Twitter, I hadn't noticed it before, but absolutely correct. The goal celebrations mm-hmm. in this tournament have been terrible. Terrible. Mm-hmm. And if women want their sport to be treated with the same respect as the men. have got to celebrate better. So you mentioned my daughter. She happens to be sitting here in the studio. We're leaving on Thursday to go to the Women's World Cup. Goal celebrations? When we were in Germany four years ago, Megan Rapino, as I recall, had a pretty good goal celebration. Chloe, can you describe that goal celebration? Do you remember? When Megan Rapino scored in, which game was it? It was against uh, Sweden, wasn't it? Was in, against Sweden. She ran over to one of the microphones in the corner and um, started singing Born in the USA. And she got the yellow card for it. <laughs> sort of met all of, the, all of the requirements for a good goal celebration. Audacious, mm-hmm. involved a prop, mm-hmm. and you were penalized for it. Now, how did we know what she was singing, though? Was she mic'd? Yeah, it was, it was in the she, microphone. It was a microphone? Well, that she was a microphone in the microphone. Yeah. And also Max Weinberg was there for the time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you guys should encourage Megan Rapino to do the same this time around. Um, I'm looking for some better goal celebrations. Yeah. All right. Now it is time for After Balls. And our guest, Zach Hample, went to Guilford College in North Carolina. So I was just 
Googling. Mike was Googling to see what their uh, mascot was. The Quakers. Not afterball quality. I respect a Quaker. Thank it's you. Not an afterball after quality uh, name. So I discovered that there was a golfer named Jesse Guilford, who I don't think has any connection to uh, Guilford College, but his nickname was Siege Gun for his long drive qualities, mm-hmm. according Go to Wikipedia. On. <laughs> and <laughs> combines golf with ball hawking, Guilford, Siege Gun, long drives, Dustin Johnson. It's perfect. Mike, what is your Siege Gun? My Siege Gun is about the most, the simultaneously most exciting and least exciting way to end a baseball game. Yes, last week there was a balk-off. Not a balk-off. A balk-off win. It was a one nothing game. Whenever the Texas Rangers play the L.A. Dodgers, strange things happen. Some argue that the Rangers should not be playing the Dodgers that much. But it was one nothing. It was in the ninth inning. And uh, Keone Kila balked. Thus scoring, Dodger shortstop Jimmy Rollins frantically waving, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think it's a balk. And yes, in fact, the pinch runner scored on the balk, the balk-off win. How many balk-off wins do you think there have been in Major League history? I have the answer right in front of me. Go ahead, guys. 68. Four. 18. Exactly in between. And the last... <laughs> the last well, four balk- times four times four... Mm-hmm, yeah. That's right. It's too complex to get into. Yeah. The last balk-off win was 2014 when the Indians beat the Tigers 11-10. to 10. Now, I think a one nothing balk-off is just so much more satisfying. that You go to a whole game, and the only time you see a run is when some dude balks. I just and feel like the Mets they... lose every game that way. Maybe, I don't, maybe yes. it's just me. There's the whiff of balking. A weird thing, and the Harvard Sports Analysis did this really well, where they did note that almost half, eight out of the 18 balk-offs in Major League history in the last 100 years have been in extra innings including the one in 2014 when the Indians balked off after coming from behind 9-10 to in the last frame of the 13th. Some great pitchers have been the balker, like uh, John Rocker, great pitcher and great human. (laughs) Al Albuquerque, who Mike Francesa claims does not really exist, and you're getting the joke wrong. Roger McDowell. Johnny Sane, a Johnny Sane balk. Yeah, 1942. Johnny Sane. Three pray. days of rain. Pray for Balk. Yeah. Pray pray for Balk. Now, I have never seen a Balk off in person. I don't think I've even been watching TV when a Balk off happened. <laughs> if you were watching the 2013 World Series, we saw games end on obstruction calls and we saw games end on that pickoff play. But here's how I just want to see a game end. This is my dream in life to see a game end when a runner is called, this is against the rules, to run the bases backwards. This is the Germany Schaefer rule. If you remember, uh, after in 1911, there was an attempted double steal. Runner on third. Schaefer is on first. Schaefer takes second, did not draw the throw. So what does Schaefer do? He runs the other way. He steals first again. So they put the rule in place that you could not run the bases backward. Here it is. Any runner is out when after he has acquired legal possession of a base, he runs the bases in reverse order for the purpose of confusing the defense or making a travesty of the game. Either one. He could claim I was not making a travesty, but if, but then the defense has to be confused. So if he, if he runs the bases out of order in earnestness, but the defense like, yeah, we, we don't care, then no, then he's not out. But if the defense puts their hands up and starts saying, what's going on, then in fact he is out, and that would be the best way for a game to end. 
I don't think we can argue with that. You've, uh, you've obviously put some thought into it. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan, what is your siege gun? You know who was trending on baseball Twitter on Saturday? Hooks Wiltsy. Hooks Wiltsy, yeah. Until Max Scherzer did it in D.C., New York Giants lefty George Hooks Wiltsy was the only pitcher in Major League history to hit a batter with two outs in the ninth inning to lose a perfect game. I think our afterballs are all going to be about obscure baseball plays. The circumstances at the Polo Grounds on July 4th, 1908, were slightly different. When Wiltsy lost his perfecto against the Philadelphia Athletics, the score was 0-0. Like Scherzer, Wiltsy got the next batter after the hit-by-pitch. He also finished with a no-hitter when the Giants scored in the bottom of the 10th. Wiltsy is one of three pitchers, only three pitchers, to throw a 10-inning no-hitter and one of three to throw a no-hitter on July 4th. Can you name one of the other ones? I listened to that game. Clue raced into my house to hear the last inning after pulling into the driveway of my childhood home. It was Dave Rigetti in 1983. Hooks oh, was I knew 28. That. I knew that. You didn't let me guess. I'm I sorry. I didn't want to okay. guess. I wanted to pretend that you didn't know. Dave oh, Rigetti. I thought it was to the, yeah. Hooks was 28 when he threw his near-perfect game. Like Scherzer's, there was controversy with two outs in the top of the ninth. Wiltsy had a one-and-two count on the Athletics pitcher George McQuillan. He threw a ball right down the middle. McQuillan didn't swing, but the ump, Cy Riggler, called it a ball. Wiltsy hit McQuillan with his next pitch, quote, and that's the only blemish on our fair, or rather brunette, young man, and we don't take much stock in it, the New York Times reported. Go on up with the immortals, friend Wiltsy, and take your place right in between Cy Young, John Ward, and others. The umpire, Riggler, did later admit blowing the call, and according to Wiltsy's Society for American Baseball Research biography, spent years giving Wiltsy cigars to atone for it. That Sabre bio written by Gabriel Schechter is like so many Sabre bios fantastic. It reveals that Hooks wasn't just some random dead ball era guy who had one great afternoon. He was a mainstay of a Giants rotation that included Christy Mathewson and Rube Marquard. In that season, he went 23 and 14 with 30 complete games and a 2.24 ERA, and he won 130 games in his career. More than that, he had an evocative baseball life filled with Gumpian moments. Hooks, Schechter writes, got his nickname not for his ability to curve a baseball nor for his hook nose, but for his fielding prowess on the mound. He grew up on a farm in Pexport, New York, until his father moved the family to Syracuse and went into the carpet business. His older brother, Lewis, nicknamed Snake, Snake and Hooks. He was a major leaguer too, but Snake's career lasted just three seasons. Hooks wasn't sure he wanted to even play pro ball. Quote, torn between baseball and selling carpets, Schechter writes. In 1902, Wiltsy signed with Troy of the New York State League for $275 a month. In 1903, he went 20-8. The Giants bought his contract. Hooks won his first 12 big league decisions, a record that's never been exceeded, only matched by Butch Metzger, in the 1970s, behind Mathewson's 31 wins in 1905, the Giants won the World's Championship. In 1906, Wiltsy set another record thanks to a dropped third strike. He struck out seven Cincinnati Reds in two innings. Late in that great 1908 season, though, he was involved in one of the most infamous plays in baseball history. According to Schechter, Hooks was coaching first base when Fred Merkel failed to touch second on what would have been a game-winning hit against the Cubs, Merkel's boner. During the 1913 World Series, when Merkel and Fred Snodgrass were injured, Hooks played first base, and he lived up to his nickname. In the bottom of the ninth of a scoreless game two, the Athletics put runners on second and third with nobody out. The next two batters, Schechter writes, slashed grounders at Wiltsy, 
who both times snared the ball and cut down the potential winning run at the plate. The Giants won the game, didn't win the series. Three losses in a row. The Giants released Hooks in 1914. He signed on in 1915 with the Upstart Federal League with a team with one of the great names of all time, the Brooklyn Tip Tops. Named for Mike Pesca? I won't tread on your answer if you get this one. Tip Top Brewery! Close! Tip Top Bread. It was a bakery. He played and managed in the minors for a decade, went home to Syracuse, went into real estate and local politics. In 1937, he told the Sporting News about the new generation of baseball players. Quote, the boys don't take the game as seriously as we used to. I remember in my day, we ate, slept, and lived baseball. Swing music and the automobile have changed the temperament of youth. Hooks Wiltsey died of emphysema in 1959. <laughs> that reminded me of the Ar- Armando Galarraga, Jim Joyce. Perfect game when Joyce called the guy safe at first base erroneously. And now they're buddies, Galarraga and Joyce. My thought was if there was a third brother, he should be named Drano because <laughs> snakes, hooks, mm-hmm. and Drano are always to unclog a sink. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there was a third brother named Drano. Drano. Maybe that was his name, not his nickname. No. <laughs> yeah. Josh, what's your siege gun? We did not achieve the triple crown this week, <sighs> unfortunately. Mine's kind of serious. I've talked on this show before about how I favor a federalist approach to NFL discipline. I don't believe Roger Goodell should be suspending players for off-field behavior. I don't think that's the job of the NFL commissioner. But I think it's totally fine for the Ravens, for example, who actually employed Ray Rice to cut him from the team because he punched his then fiance in an elevator. I'm bringing this all up now because of two players who are currently on the roster of my hometown team, the New Orleans Saints, Junior Gallette and Kevin Williams. Gallette, uh, who the Saints signed to a big contract extension in 2014, was arrested for simple battery involving domestic violence in January of this year. According to the New Orleans Times-Picayune, the charges were dismissed in February because Interviews with witnesses cast doubt on whether the alleged victim was a member of the household, and domestic violence charges can only involve persons in the same household. The woman then filed a civil suit, but her lawyer withdrew from the suit, and it hasn't gone forward. Now fast forward to last week, and it was reported that Gallette was the man in a YouTube video titled Spring Break 2013 South Beach Brawl that depicts a guy hitting a woman multiple times with a belt. Gallette's attorney says he's seen the video a bunch of times and, quote, it certainly doesn't convince me that it's Junior. A Saints spokesperson, though, says the team has sent the video to the league office and that there is a process this will go through at the league office level. Now, Kevin Williams. Saints just signed him to a free agent deal. Back in 2005, when he played for the Vikings, he was charged with fifth-degree domestic assault. According to the AP, police in suburban Minnetonka charged the six foot five, 304 pound Williams after his wife called 911 during a domestic disturbance at their home. Police records said that when officers arrived, Tasha Williams had blood on her white t-shirt and two lacerations on her left forearm. According to the record, she said her husband was mad at her because she wasn't wearing her wedding ring. She said she hit him between the eyes with her cell phone to get him off her, that he then flung her across their bed. She said she hit the bedstand and fell to the ground. Kevin Williams was observed to be under the influence of alcohol. The police records alleged he told police his his wife had grabbed a knife but did not threaten him with it, that he took it away from her. It was not the first arrest for Williams, who was picked up for drunken driving in 2003. 
Williams eventually pled guilty to disorderly conduct and was put on probation for a year. Since then, he hasn't been in any legal trouble that I know of, but he was suspended for a couple games by the NFL for using performance-enhancing drugs in 2011. All right, so two players here who've been accused of domestic violence and or violence against women. Uh, In the case of Junior Gallette, even amidst all the uncertainties and both the allegations he's facing, the local media has done a good job reporting on each development to the extent that I think most Saints fans, most people who follow the NFL, know what's going on with this guy. They know the accusations, they're updated um, with any relevant news. Now, maybe it's because it happened a long time ago and it was in a different city, but with Kevin Williams, I have not seen a single New Orleans writer mention that he bloodied his wife and that he pled guilty to disorderly conduct. Mike Triplett, who covers the Saints for ESPN and I've always thought was a good beat reporter, talked to Williams after he signed with the team and wrote that the defensive lineman, quote, was full of comic gems, then added, on a more serious note, Williams said he liked the fit in New Orleans because it's close to where he has family in Arkansas. Wow, that is really serious. I do not think... On an even more serious note... <laughs> and there was nothing, obviously there was nothing in there. He didn't ask him a question about the domestic violence, nothing, nothing about it. I don't think players with rap sheets should be kicked out of the NFL for life. I think the Saints want to sign this guy. They should sign this guy. With Junior Gallette, they're basically saying it's up to the league office, which I don't agree with, but at least there's some transparency there. But I think it's dereliction of duty for someone like Triplett, for other Saints writers, for other NFL writers, not to mention a player's history of domestic violence, not to ask the player about it, not to ask Coach Sean Payton or General Manager Mickey Loomis or owner Tom Benson, you know, what is your rationale for signing this guy, Um, which brings me back to the point I made at the top. I think personnel decisions like these should be made at the local level by the teams themselves, but for fans and communities to be able to hold teams to account for these decisions, the local media needs to be paying attention because if you sign someone like Kevin Williams, the bare minimum as a team you should have to do is answer the question, why did you bring in a player with a history of violence against women? Like, That's all. That's all I'm asking. If you want to sign this guy, just answer the question in public. That's it. That's all. All right. We love your feedback and what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. Also, gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hangup and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Emma Zayner. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Jack Dillon, producer of How Your World Works, a new show from Popular Mechanics on Panoply. For our first episode, we needed some help getting started, so we contacted this guy. Some guy I knew that I worked with at a studio had this, this foam hanging around, this acoustic foam, these panels. That's right. That's podcasting legend Mark Marin who will be joining us on the show. He'll tell us what you can do with a garage, a microphone, and a bunch of other stuff that he doesn't fully know how to use. But he's gotten by all right. That's How Your World Works on Panoply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.